podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Good day, everyone. Welcome to Cricket Unfiltered. I'm your host, Paul Dennett, and today we've got a special book review episode of the show. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Ashley Gray on the line. He's just written a new book called The Unforgiven, Mercenaries or Missionaries, The Untold Stories of the Rebel West Indian Cricketers Who Toured Apartheid South Africa. Welcome to the show, Ashley. G'day, Paul. It's great to be on it. Now, I just want to begin by uh, taking you back to 2003, and it sounds like you were living the dream of, of many of us cricket fans. You were on uh, an Australian tour of the Caribbean. You were writing for a magazine and having a holiday at the same time. And then one day after, after play, I think it was, you took a cab ride that kind of um, ultimately led to this book. Can you tell us about that cab ride and what happened then? Yeah, sure, yeah. I mean, like a lot of guys during the, uh, the 90s and, and the 80s, I suppose, um, yeah, a trip to the West Indies was sort of like a rite of passage in a way. Yeah, after one day at Sabina Park, I was in the uh, cab, a taxi cab, and... Uh, I'd, I'd heard about Richard Austin. He played um, World Series cricket here in 78, 79. And, and I mentioned Richard Austin. He said, look, you want me to take you to him? And, and I was like, well, sure, yeah, where, where is he? And he said, look, he's he's uh, actually begging in the gutter in Crossroads, which is a place in uh, Kingston. And I said, look, yeah, take me, please. Yeah, I want, want to meet him. I want to see what his story is. And so he took me there. And, and there was Richard with a, a gang of drifters. And they were actually sitting in the gutter. Uh, Richard was uh, swigging rum from an empty, from a uh, plastic coat bottle, and uh, wanted money for cocaine. And uh, his uh, pals wanted money for the interview as well. So um, yeah, it was a little bit strained at first, but then uh, he just got to talking. And um, yeah, he's a very entertaining guy, despite the fact that he was, in, in his eyes at least, homeless. And uh, you know, he was running with a gang. What he said had happened was that. Um, you know, he'd been on these tours to apartheid South Africa in the, in the 80s, his rebel tours, and uh, he'd come back to Jamaica and uh, they considered that he had taken blood money by playing in apartheid South Africa. And the fact that he was a black man, you know, only sort of doubled the uh, the intensity of their outrage. Um, but during that conversation, um, Richard was telling me that uh, he was good mates with Kerry Packer. I mean, he, he sort of had a gift for high comedy. <laughs> and he said he wanted me to call Kerry, his good friend Kerry. I'll come over and coach the New South Wales side and, <laughs> and also play for them. And uh, I mean, he was kind of half joking, but he kind of half wasn't, you know. But yeah, there was a bigger story there. And the bigger story was that, uh, you know, he'd been ostracized because of the fact that he'd been to apartheid South Africa and taken $100,000, which at the time was something like 80 times what your average Jamaican could expect to earn in a year. So it was a lot of lot of money, and it, mm. and it was very hard for these guys to resist. Guys like Richard, who were on the periphery of um, West Indies cricket uh, and couldn't have expected to play much more test cricket, if any. So, so yeah, I knew there was a bigger story. It was always in the back of my mind to do something more because I knew these other guys, you know, there were 19 other guys that went on these tours, and and uh, I knew their stories had to be told. But it wasn't until, until 2015 when Richard actually passed away, and I wrote an 
sort of obituary on him. And that, that just really brought home to me that these guys' stories were going to uh, were going to vanish soon. You know, I mean, they were getting on and, and no one had told them. And, uh, yeah, I just felt like I had a unique insight and it was up to me to, to bring it home. So that's, uh, that's how I kind of got started, Paul. It's a remarkable dif- difference between the way that they were treated and the way that the English and Australian rebel tourists were, were treated. So the Australians and English um, went to South Africa roughly the same time, and at the time they were uh, castigated and they were talked, you know, they got bans. But within a few years, they were, if they wanted to, back within the establishment. Some of them went on to have glittering test careers and 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 be revered in the game. Why was it that the West Indies were treated so much differently? Yeah, basically because uh, they were black. There were sanctions against South Africa, and Bob Hawke at the time certainly didn't want the Australians to go. But in in the UK, the uh, the Conservative government under Margaret Thatcher uh, um, wasn't against the tours at all. So so the English went there. They got they got banned for three years. And, and as you say, guys like Graham Goots and you know went on to become a, a batting legend for uh, England. And, and you know Jeffrey Boyd got got a, got a knighthood. Uh, and in Australia as well, you had they were banned for three years as well. But then you had guys like Trevor Holmes come back and you know. He became uh, chairman of selectors. Uh, so there, yeah. was, there was no approval at all in terms of uh, how the Australians or the English were treated. But because the uh, West Indian guys were black guys and they'd gone to a country that systematically discriminated against people of their own colour, the reaction back in the Caribbean, which is obviously predominantly black, was extreme. And, and, and they felt the brunt of it. And, and and to some degree, that was uh, a very justifiable reaction, obviously, because in the Caribbean, that there was a, a sense in which apartheid was uh, a dagger at the throat of the black diaspora throughout throughout the world. But there was also a degree of sympathy, because as, as I said before, they were offered gargantuan sums of money, you know. Well, if you say it's 80 times, it's like, I mean, compare that to an Australian, it's, um, what, if the average yeah. salary is 50 grand, it's like offering someone $4 million, and a yep. person who is quite often, you know, about 30, not much career prospect because they were kind of on the fringes of the West Indian side. Yep. So it's an opportunity to be, to be absolutely set up for life. What What is so sort of tragic is that even though these guys were then banned for life, you'd think, well, at least they had their money to comfort them. In so many instances, it sort of, it didn't work out that way. And the, the one that touched me most was the David Murray story, that um, he was the incumbent sure. West Indian keeper of 1981-82 on the tour of Australia, regarded as a fantastic yep. keeper. Uh, and then yep. from there to go to where you found him living, uh, you know, the top story of a of a hovel with a, um, yep. you know, I think you wrote in the book, it looked like he's, it was almost like it was a, a refuge home. Um, yeah. He had nothing, and all he was doing was sort of selling dope on the on the, on the beaches. How did he? Yep. And he's the son of you know Sir Everton Weeks. How did he fall yep. so far? Yeah, you know, David's a, an interesting character. I mean, if you if you meet him, he's a very gentle, sort of soft spoken guy, and uh, he's very friendly, very peaceable. Um, and he obviously smokes a, a lot of dope. But, um, yeah, going back to uh, Melbourne, 1981, he took nine catches in that uh, first test against Australia. And uh, it was a record. He was keeping Jeff Dujon out of the side. Yeah, because Murray was so good. He was he was just so silky behind the stumps. So many people I spoke to in, in the Caribbean said that yeah, he had the best technique and he's pretty much the best keeper that the West Indies had. West Indies has ever had, but there was also this, this problem that he had with drugs. And he said to me that you know he was going, you know, playing test matches, first class matches, and he'd uh, 
have, have sort of a, a trust before the game and, uh, <laughs> and it was helping focus and, and take the ball more cleanly, you know. And uh, Guzon, you know, who, who speaks very uh, highly of uh, David Murray and said that um, Murray was so good that he made him, Guzon, uh, seem like, you know, Dolly Parton behind the stumps, <laughs> you know. During that tour, there was meant to be a team meeting and David didn't show up. Jeffrey Guzon goes downstairs and... Uh, to the foyer, and he just sees David just staring through the glass at some at the cars going by. You know, he's been totally out of it, totally in the daze. And Dujon asked David what he was doing, and and, and David just sort of went, "Yeah, man," you know, he's completely and utterly out of it. And the thing was, he hurt his finger uh, bowling in the net. This is David Murray to Clive Lloyd, and so he's carrying an injury. And then during that um, series, uh, Dujon took over from. Murray in the um, uh, in the one day series and, and batted well and kept well and so by the time by the time of the third test this is only two tests after Murray you know has taken a West Indies record nine catches which still stands today he's almost preferred and this really uh, upset Murray he was meant to do twelve uh, man duties and he was very lax and then he was fined a thousand dollars by management and. From that moment on, his uh, his career just went downhill, and he was never invited back into the West Indies side again. So when the offer comes from Ali Packer to, to go to South Africa, he's into it straight away. And, and like a lot of the guys, when he came back from South Africa with all this money, he said, you know, he spent it on friends and uh, um, women as well, besides uh, the Australian woman that he was married to. And yeah, he just uh, ended up having to beg for money from people who who once had seen so much hope and promise in him. He also um, found that uh, he couldn't play for cricket anymore because he was banned for life. And this meant that he didn't really have anything to do other than sort of ruminate on, on what had happened mm-hmm. to him. And, and he lost his, his wife as well. Yeah, it just really went out of control for him. But yeah, if, if you met him now, he's a lovely guy. You take him out for a drink, he's... He's a really nice guy, but yeah, what, what, if he gets, if he drinks too much, he, he sort of falls apart. Yeah, lovely guy, um, but sad story. You know. When they were over there um, in South Africa, yeah. the reaction was extraordinary in the sense that the um, the white South Africans. Uh, often the, the the kids looked up to these West Indian players as heroes, and you had this strange dichotomy of um, the black South Africans were totally and utterly discriminated against um, by the whites, and yet the whites were regarding the West Indies as superstars. Yes, yes, it was the first time they many of these uh, white kids, especially, had seen uh, black people doing something other than menial jobs. You know, they were uh, they were just astounded; they they couldn't believe what they'd seen when they saw these magnificent West Indian athletes come and trounce the uh, the South African sides, which, which were good sides, you know, which had players the Callum Pollock, Richard Kirsten, uh, uh, Garth LaRue, guys that were um, sort of household names in world cricket. And these West Indian guys come in, they beat them, and, and the, the white crowds were just astonished. But it, but it was almost in the, in the sense of these West Indian players were, were exotic. Mm. And they, they were different black people to the black people they dealt with every day. Yeah, I read a quote where one guy was saying, you know, one uh, sort of presumptuous uh, white guy at a, at a reception for the uh, the West Indians said, 
but these these black these black chaps don't have uh, a chip on their shoulder, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it was a strange, uh, but also uplifting in a way that uh, that a lot of white people did, in fact, see the beauty of what was going on with, with these uh, with these cricketers that they'd come to see and, and how fantastic they could play. But they were worshipped after the games. Guys like Collis King were uh, because he was. Just a flamboyant sort of hero on the field, off the field. There'd be massive lines, lineups for his autograph, and people wanted parts of his clothing, and you know they wanted the chains that he wore, and everything. You know, it was uh, it was eye opening for those kids, I think, in in a way, because they'd never seen anything like it before. And uh, I think that's probably the, the one good thing about this, one positive thing about the tours was that the uh, these white youth got to see black guys in a way that they had not seen them before. And sure. perhaps there was there might have been some change that happened because of that. I, I, it's hard to, hard to say. But, yeah. Uh, um, and uh, obviously some of the stars like Holding and, and Lloyd were outspoken in their desire to have nothing to do yeah. with it. Um, have you yeah. attempted to contact Michael Holding to get his side of the story? Because there's that obviously that perception of, yeah, well, it was easy for you guys to take the correct moral high ground because you were um, financially yeah. very well looked after. Um, ha- yeah. Did you try to get his um, side of the story? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. And he said he didn't want to – I mean, he, he was friendly, but uh, – and he gave me a few contacts for people in Jamaica that proved very fruitful. Mm-hmm. But uh, he said he just didn't want to have anything to do with it because he felt like he'd said too much. and. The inference I got was that uh, there were already quite a few friendships there that had sort of been ruptured by what he'd said previously, and he didn't want to go there again. I think he just wanted to wants to move on from the issue. Um, but uh, Clive Lloyd, um, <laughs> I tried to get him, but uh, he wasn't didn't really want anything to do with it, and uh, uh, um, negotiations fell go down very quickly there, unfortunately, because he wanted large sums of money. But um, yes, the thing about them was, as Roland Butcher pointed out to me, the first the first black guy to play for uh, uh, England, he said it was great that uh, Holding and Lloyd took this line because you know, it was the right line to take because the, the, the tools were in bad faith and they did help up apartheid for a little bit longer and they gave credence to what was happening in, in South Africa. But at the same time, would they have held those opinions if they were in the same position exactly, as yeah. these guys were, if, if they were fringe players, you know? And if they had it, well and good, but we'll never know, you know? It was a, a lot easier for them to say it because they, they had guaranteed futures, I suppose. You're sort of indicating in some of the other interviews I've heard, you said that maybe there's a softening of the attitude um, towards some of these players. But yep. uh, the Lawrence Rowe story, that it wasn't all that long ago that they tried to... Well, they, they named a grandstand after him as, as if to sort of... Um, yep heal things, and then um, a few weeks later, they um, ripped the name off there. Um, that's an extraordinary turn of events. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was heartbroken by that, because he thought that uh, having the Players Pavilion at Sabina Park named after him showed that he'd finally been forgiven and also restored to his rightful place in history, as, as he sees it. But, yeah, as it turned out, within a day, actually, of uh, him receiving the honour, he was on a radio program and he likened the rebels and himself to uh, a Jamaican hero from the 19th century who rebelled against British rule, a guy called Paul Bogle. And uh, this prompted a major outcry because uh, people thought that, you know, he was uh, elevating himself and the rebels to something that they they weren't. And and he, he said, Rose said that perhaps over time, we will be forgiven and seen, in fact, as heroes in the same way that Bogle was. And, and 
yeah, one person in particular, Delano Franklin, who was a, a lawyer and uh, a, um, a former politician, uh, objected massively to that. And from that moment on, he spearheaded the campaign to uh, have Rowe's name removed. And ultimately it was, and uh, Lawrence is still very upset about it, as you can imagine. Yeah, talking to people in J- Jamaica in, at the Kingston Cricket Club, they said that perhaps the rebels have been forgiven, but we're not ready to elevate them, and, and they never will be elevated. Not all of them have fallen on hard times, and Colin Croft seems like he got through things quite well, and then, um, I know he didn't want to talk to you, um, but how, how did he seem to keep things together so much better than so many of the others did? Yeah, it just seems that like Colin was just one of those guys who knew, always knew where he was going and always knew what he uh, wanted out of life. He was happy, happy to curtail his test career at that point. He had a, had a back injury, and uh, it was proving difficult to fix. He was still, nominally at least, part of the fearsome foursome alongside Roberts, Garner and, and Holding. But, yeah, he could see that it was going to be difficult to get back into uh, full fast bowling mode with a, with a back injury. And uh, Ali Bakker offered him probably some of the best uh, medical care in, in the world at mm. that point. And he had taught. He had, uh, in schools, he taught mathematics in school. He uh, had uh, a pilot's license. Yeah, he had his career kind of sorted out. He was just a guy who was uh, always sort of in control of things, I think, I think in that way. And in, in, in any bunch of 20 men, you're going to find some that are in control and know where they're going and some that uh, are just you know, playing it as it comes and hoping for the best, whereas Colin just always seemed to be a man in, in control of his own destiny. And, and that's why I, I think he, he dealt with it better. It was water off a duck's back, what people uh, said to him. He's just just a harder kind of character, and I think that came out when he played as well. Because uh, yeah, there's, there's few people I can think of that uh, would be worse to face than him. Yeah. Um, and in terms of kind of looking at the naivety of the tourists, is the yep. quote that's attributed to them uh, to one of them about Nelson Mandela? Is that an accurate quote? Yeah, yeah. That that came from a uh, Guardian story um, from a Guardian journalist at the time who. Uh, who, quote, who quoted it? So yes, it was uh, it was accurate. And basically, one of the it, tourists was asked about um, about Nelson Mandela, and and how did they reply? And uh, he said, uh, "We haven't played him yet, so I can't tell you how good he is." <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were there were lots of guys on the tours who, who didn't really know what apartheid was, you know. And, and this was borne out in a survey that happened a couple of months after the uh, first tour, and this was uh, done in the Jamaica Gleaning newspaper. 68% of respondents said that they were in favour of the tour, which which in hindsight seems a little shocking because we tend to think that, um, you know, there was a a lot of hostility, which there was, but it it was, for your average person in a ghetto, the idea of someone else is playing cricket and this is their livelihood, taking money to go to South Africa and play was something they would have done as well. And this was borne out in, in the survey. But the other point of the survey was that half of those 58% didn't actually know what apartheid was. Right. So that just goes to show you that there there wasn't a high level of awareness of of, of uh, apartheid, even even on a ground level, but obviously within the, in the rebels as, as well, because... Uh, yeah, they just didn't seem to be all that knowledgeable. I mean, uh, Lawrence Rowe, he knew what was coming and uh, 
and they all knew there would be uh, a backlash, but they, they thought it would be three years like um, England and Australia. So when they got the life bans, that really just hit home to them that, uh, yeah, it was over for them. And they were getting reports back from the Caribbean when they were in South Africa about, you know, that their houses being stoned and, uh, you know, their relatives being sort of targeted and, and this kind of thing. And, and so, so they were very fearful when they were in South Africa of what was going on back in, in the Caribbean and what their futures held for them. And uh, in many ways, I think that the South African Cricket Union and and uh, what what it's called now, South, is it called South Africa? I think um, so, yeah. Kind of owes, owes the guys, I, I think it, it owes them some kind of uh, duty of care and some kind of perhaps even pension because... I think that um, the West Indians suffered more than any of those rebel sides because they came from uh, regions that were much more impoverished as well. There were there were always going to be problems for them down the track in in a way that there wasn't going to be in in England or in in, in Australia. Ultimately, in in Ali Backer's eyes, they were just mercenaries who were there to prop up South African cricket for a while until they got readmitted re- to the test scene. So, um, yeah, that, that's my take on it at the moment, um, Paul. It's a fascinating book, well worth reading. Any Australian cricket fan will see lots of references to Australia in there, lots of famous moments in, in Australian history, in Australian cricketing history as well. A part of history that was very, very significant and passionate at the time, so it's well worth revisiting. So if you get a, a chance, uh, it's called The Unforgiven uh, Mercenaries or Missionaries. It's by Ashley Gray. You can find it on Amazon or in any bookstore, and it details those tours of the in 82, 83 and um, 83, 84 and uh, it's, it was nominated for Wisdom's Book of the Year. So, Ashley, thanks very much for your time and, and, and every best wish for continued success with the book. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Lovely to be on. Sports Social Podcast Network.